Let's pray. Father, we own that song this morning. Lord, would you glorify your name through us this morning? Lord, we especially ask that you would draw near to us as we study your word. Father, that you would illumine our hearts uh, to see wonderful things in this book. And Father, we also ask that you would uh, be at work among us uh, to bring sinners to repentance. And Father, if there are any here who have hardened their hearts against you, we pray, Father, that you would use the message from your word this morning, from our Lord himself, Lord, that you would use this message to be uh, the blow to their hard hearts and to bring them to repentance. And Father, we ask, lastly and most significantly of all, Lord, that you would glorify your name in this hour. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Over the past few weeks, we've been making our way through one of our Lord's most famous parables, titled the Parable of the Sower. And the way Mark presents this parable to us is that he gives it to us in segments. Really, in verses 3 to 9, we were given the parable. And then in verses 10 to 12, there's a brief explanation as to why Jesus spoke in parables. And then in verses 13 to 20, Jesus gives the explanation of the parable of the sower. So it's, it's kind of stilted, and which is why we're taking our time through it. It's 20 verses, and we want to just make sure we get all that we can uh, from this section of Scripture. And this morning we find ourselves right in the middle of it all in verses 10 to 12, looking at really the purpose of the parables in general. And just by way of review, you'll remember that the lesson of the parable of the sower is pretty simple. It's not complicated. And the lesson is this. The way one responds to the Word of God is determined by the condition of the heart. One's response to the Word of God is determined by the condition or the status of of the heart. And in the larger context of Mark's gospel, the parable of the sower helps us to understand why so many people responded to our Lord in unbelief. And the greatest preacher, greatest teacher, most powerful communicator to ever walk the earth, and yet the majority of people who heard him preach rejected his message. That's baffling. Why is that the case? Maybe most significantly of all, why is it that the religious elite, those who had the most information about the Messiah, those who were the most privileged on the planet at that moment, not only had they studied the books of Scripture, but they were living in the moment when love incarnated itself. Now, they were living in the moment when the Messiah was present. The moment that all of the prophets hoped and longed for. And all of a sudden, here they are, and here is Jesus in front of them. And they have all the knowledge and all the privilege. And they look at our Lord, and they decisively reject Him. This is shocking. Why? 
Why is it that the people who should have known better so decisively and with such finality rejected the Lord Jesus? And the, the natural question, of course, is this. If Jesus was really the Messiah, then why did the religious elite reject Him? And if Jesus was the Messiah, why were there so few people who were following Him? And why were the people that were following Him so dishonorable and so lame and ordinary and basic? Wouldn't it make sense that if the Messiah comes, that the elite would follow Him? And that the religious leadership would see and recognize their Messiah. Well, what we've tried to establish so far, and really to recognize from this parable, is that the problem was not with the Messiah. The problem was not with Jesus. The problem, the fundamental issue, was the hearts of those who heard Jesus preach and teach. That was the issue. And that really is always the issue. Responses to the gospel message that you deliver and you carry as ambassadors for Christ are always conditioned on the heart of the hearer. The rejection of the gospel message that you deliver has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the condition of the heart of the hearer. It's not the preacher. It's not the teacher. It's the condition of the heart that determines response to the Word of God. In Jesus' case, from a human perspective, He had done His part faithfully. He did what He was called to do. He proclaimed the truth of the gospel. And the failed response of His audience, especially the religious leadership, was not on Him from a human perspective. It was on the barrenness of the religious leaders' hearts. They had hearts that were hard. The issue was their hearts, not the sower. Now, of course, we understand that every heart is barren until God supernaturally regenerates it. Don't we understand that? Theologically speaking, we get that. We understand that every heart remains uh, infertile until the Lord does something supernaturally in that heart. That's what we might call the vertical perspective. We are very familiar with that perspective. But there's another perspective that Scripture presents to us that we could call the horizontal perspective. And that's really the human perspective. And that's the angle that we're presented in this parable. And it's the angle we're going to talk about this morning. And we could call it the perspective of human responsibility. We know vertically God works in hearts and regenerates and does supernatural things that only He can do. But at the same time, we understand that we are not puppets. We understand that we have an obligation and responsibility to respond to the Word of God when it is proclaimed. And I submit to you that the parable of the sower plays on that string of responsibility. It's the point of view... In this parable, it's the point of view that underscores your responsibility to hear the Word of God and respond to it in faith and repentance. That's the perspective we're camping out in. So if you're listening to me and you think, wow, he sounds very much like an Arminian. I'm sorry. Uh, I would tell you that I'm not. Um, I am just trying to be faithful to this passage. And the perspective of this passage, I think, 
is very much one of human responsibility. And what we're going to look at this morning is that there is a way for an individual to hear the Word of God over and over and over again, and from a human perspective, to perpetually reject the message, either outright or by perpetual disobedience to it, and to do that long enough that God finally responds to their hard-hearted unbelief with divine judgment. There is a way that you can perpetually harden your heart against God to such an extent that He withdraws His grace. And the moment of repentance passes by, and you have filled up the measure of your sin. And God, from a human perspective, finally responds to your hard-heartedness with an act of divine judgment that submits you in your hard-hearted unbelief. Now understand, that is very sobering. Very sobering. And I just want to tell you that it's these kind of sobering realities that are so dark and difficult and not enjoyable to listen to. You've got one hour Sunday morning and this is what we're going to talk about. Um, It's those kind of dark realities that actually make the gospel stand out in such brightness. When you understand what we're going to look at theologically this morning, you should rejoice that God did not leave you in your hard-heartedness, but that He came to you and worked and gave you faith. So this is my warning to you. This is not theologically going to be a joy to look at, but it should, by contrast, set the gospel in true light. So I think, specifically, in Mark 4, 11 to 12 that Jesus is speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious elite who were the most privileged people on the planet at this point, that they had heard the word of God on repeat over and over and over again. They were privileged to be alive during the advent of the Messiah. They were able to see God incarnate before their eyes. Yet, although they heard the word of God over and over, their own hearts were calcified by their own pride, and they were deaf and blind to what was right in front of them. And this is what Jesus is going to call out in Mark 4, verses 11 and 12. And there's several lessons that I want us to glean uh, from this section this morning. But before I start enumerating them, how about you stand with me and we'll read the text. Mark 4, and we'll, we'll start reading in verse 1. And we'll we'll make our way all the way to verse 12. Mark 4, beginning in verse 1. And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came and choked it, and it yielded no crop. 
Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. You may be seated. Well, I'll remind you that between verses 9 and 10, there is an important shift that takes place in the context of Mark chapter 4. In verses 1 to 8, we were told that a very large crowd had gathered to hear Jesus preach, and that Jesus, in a sort of surprising way, unexpected way to the disciples at least, was teaching them many things in parables, and he was leaving those parables unexplained. And the typical way that Jesus would conclude one of these uh, parabolic teaching segments was verse 9. He would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the way this is worded, it's as if this was the thing he said over and over and over again. And you'll remember from a few weeks ago that this was a call for everyone in the crowd to weigh what Jesus had said and to think over it very carefully. And it was a way, really, of emphasizing their personal responsibility to respond to what they had just heard. Remember, this is that that horizontal perspective that we're approaching this topic through, because I think this is what Jesus is doing as well. He's putting the onus on those who hear. Yet in verse 10, the scene changes, and Jesus is now alone with his followers, And at this point, they begin to ask him questions about the parables. And they're not just asking about the parable of the sower that we heard in verse 3 to verse 8, but they're asking about parables in general. And while Mark doesn't give us their specific question, we can reason that it would have sounded something like this. Jesus, why are you speaking to all of these people only in parables? And not explaining the meaning of the parables to them. Why, why are you doing that? Remember, a parable is just an analogy, a metaphor, a comparison that served to shed light on some teaching content. It's an illustration. But if the parable was not explained to the audience, it functioned more like a riddle. Because then they had to try to figure out, what did he mean? He was talking about soils and seeds and mustard and all this stuff. What was he talking about? So the disciples are curious as to why Jesus is not taking the time to unpack each one of these parables to the audience that's there to hear him teach. And so they ask him about it. And then verse 11 and 12, Jesus gives his answer. Look at verse 11 with me. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, 
so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Very sobering statement. And we looked last week that on the one hand, from this passage, we see that parables functioned to reveal the truth to Jesus' followers. That's the first part of verse 11. That's what we saw last week. Jesus said, to you on the inside, those who are believing, trusting me, following me, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. That's a revelation. Because of their faith in Jesus, the disciples were given new revelation as to how the kingdom of God was going to grow and advance in the world. It wasn't going to come with all the pomp and splendor that everyone expected it to come. It was going to come in an unexpected way, slowly, quietly, invisibly, in the hearts of men. And the parables were given to the disciples to help them understand this. Of course, we'll look more in depth at this in the coming weeks. But at this point, just know that parables, on on the one hand, function to reveal truth to Jesus' followers. And we like that. That's wonderful, pleasant, enjoyable to think about. Uh, But there's a second dimension to the function of parables that's a little less exciting. Uh, But nonetheless, it's revealed Scripture to us, and we have to think about it. So it revealed, parables revealed truth, but for those on the outside, parables functioned, according to verse 11, to conceal the truth from them. Just look at verse 11. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Those who are outside. Literally, it's the rest, the leftovers, those people out there. The people that, the majority of people who aren't following me, they get everything in unexplained parables, essentially riddles. I remain an enigma to them, and my teaching remains an enigma to them. Now, such a statement from the Lord Jesus demands careful consideration. Because there's lots of ways to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would He not give reasonable explanations to everyone present? Why would Jesus, the incarnation of love, choose to withhold truth from those on the outside and leave them in the dark? Well, this is where the parable of the sower comes in. In verse 13, Jesus says the parable of the sower sort of becomes like a key to help us understand such a perplexing reality, all right? So look at verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? So remember, they had asked about all parables in general, and Jesus had given his general answer in verses 11 and 12, and then now in verse 13, he narrows it back down to this parable, singular meaning the parable of the sower. And he underscores this particular parable because if they don't understand this one, they will not understand anything else about what Jesus is doing. It's like he's saying, listen very carefully to me. The parable of the sower is the key. It's the key. 
It will help you understand the kingdom of God. It will help you understand your function in the kingdom of God. And it will help you understand why I am not revealing the kingdom of God to those on the outside. The parable of the sower gives the explanation. And I will just remind you, the point of the parable of the sower is that the condition of the heart determines the response to the Word. And the reason Jesus is not revealing these truths to those on the outside had everything to do with the condition of the hearts of those who were on the outside. All right, I'm going to spend the rest of our time together explaining what I mean, okay? But let me put it this way. Think back about the parable of the sower. Unlike the merely human farmer, Jesus compares himself to a farmer who's sowing seed into the soil. And unlike the merely human farmer, you and I really, who are unable to see thorn seeds mixed into the soil, or unable to see that there's that bedrock, remember that rocky soil that prevents the seed from taking root and growing deep. Jesus is actually able to see the soil. Jesus is able to evaluate the condition of every heart. We know that from John 2, 24, Matthew 9, 4, that Jesus knows the hearts of the crowd. Whereas you and I don't, Jesus does. So Jesus is looking out over the crowd. The disciples are thinking, wow, this is an opportunity, Jesus. You know, bring them in. You know, show them what you're showing us. And Jesus says, I'm going to shut the door on that, and I'm only going to give it to you guys on the inside. And they're baffled. Why, Jesus, are you doing such a thing? And Jesus does this because he knows the condition of their hearts. He knows that he had given them the truth already. And he had called them to repentance, but they had rejected the word outright already. And specifically, I think the emphasis here is on the religious leaders. They had already hardened their heart to the word of Christ, and Jesus knew that. Jesus knew it. And so he sows the seed of the word, and rather than tend to the precious seed of the word, In the hearts of those who had already rejected him, he sowed the seed and gave it no further work. However, remember, these hardened hearers, the religious elite, they didn't just say, okay, we're going to let Jesus do his thing and we're going to get back to our business. What did they do? They followed him around and they heard him teach day in, day out, hour after hour, over and over, hearing the Son of God incarnate proclaiming the truth. And they were not only there to listen, but they actually sought to undermine Him and to pull people away from following Him, to derail Him and to undermine Him by saying that He did what He did by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus knew this. He knew their hearts He knew that they had hardened their hearts against Him, and so in an act of judgment against them, He preached the Word to them, but left it unexplained as a way of further confirming them in their unbelief. That's what I think He means in verse 12. 
Those on the outside get everything in parables. And notice, so that. That's a purpose clause for this reason. They get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand otherwise. They might return and be forgiven. They're going to follow me around, Jesus says. They're going to hear me preach. But it will do them no spiritual good. In fact, it will only harden them even more. And the reason for that, for this divine judgment, is because they had already rejected the message of the Lord. That's the point. They had already hardened their hearts so much that the Lord was now responding to their unbelief with judgment. That's, I think, what's happening in Mark 4 and verse 12. Now, this is the sort of thing we see actually throughout Scripture. Uh, This is not unique to Jesus here, and it reminds us that actually there is harmony and unanimity and continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God doesn't change His personality from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see this same sort of divine judgment in several places in the Old Testament, uh, but I will just draw out one place, and it's the story of the Exodus. Think with me about the story of the Exodus. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent Moses to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. You remember the story? You might be thinking flannel graph, VBS, all right? I see some dust sort of floating in the air. The minds are working, the memory wheels turning. God's people were enslaved, and, and the Lord God commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And you'll remember in that account, ten times, Pharaoh does what? Hardens his heart against God and would not let God's people go. But we're also told ten different times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God's glory and God's power would be put on display through Pharaoh. So there was a twofold hardening taking place. Pharaoh, of his own volition, his own will, was hardening his own heart. That's the horizontal dimension. He was responsible for what he was doing. Yet God sovereignly and simultaneously hardened Pharaoh's heart to accomplish God's good purposes. Both of these processes, both of these, both God and Pharaoh rather, were active in the process of hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, of course, there is a ton of mystery here. As we look at this from the divine and human perspectives, the vertical, the horizontal, it's perplexing and your eyes get crossed and you say, I I can't reconcile this. And God has not asked you to. We are just supposed to live with it and say, okay, this is true. God is sovereign. I am responsible. But let me just say one thing from a human perspective. From the human perspective, God held Pharaoh 100% responsible for his sin. 
regardless of the vertical dimension. God came to Pharaoh and held Pharaoh 100% responsible for his rebellion. Pharaoh could never go to God and say, you know, I just hardened my heart because you started it. This is really your fault. Not at all. Pharaoh did what he did because he wanted to do that. Pharaoh was 100% responsible for his actions. So while there is certainly mystery between the vertical dimensions of God's sovereign act with Pharaoh and the horizontal dimensions of Pharaoh's will and his own hardening of his own heart, Scripture is utterly clear that Pharaoh was responsible for his sin. The same holds with us today. We are responsible for our own sin and we are responsible for responding to God in faith and repentance. There's a vertical dimension and there's a horizontal dimension. But I will tell you this, God will not repent for you. He is sovereign, but He will not repent for you. God is sovereign, but He will not believe the gospel for you. That's on you. That's on you, my friend. God lays the message out and the gospel is proclaimed. And you are responsible to turn from your sin and turn to Him and receive the Lord Jesus. You are responsible to lay hold of the promises of Scripture day in and day out. God will not believe for you. He will not obey for you. God is sovereign, but He holds you responsible for these actions. So much so, going back to Pharaoh. God even goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Now, this is not a ruse on God's part. He's coming to Pharaoh and he's saying, Pharaoh, let them go. Pharaoh is responsible to hear God's word, the prophetic message from Moses, and to obey it. And from a human perspective, he could have let them go. Yet he continued to rebel against God and to harden his heart in pride. And God met Pharaoh's arrogant rebellion with a divine act of judgment that further hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that? Both at play, vertical, horizontal. We see a similar situation in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, don't we? Why don't you flip over to Romans 1 and we can look at it together. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Do you see the human responsibility dimension? Very clear. The truth is there. You can see it. You all see it. This is universal. Everyone sees it. But notice verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks 
But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they were given the truth. In this case, it was the truth of natural revelation that every individual has. But rather than submitting to the dictates of their own conscience and to what they knew to be true, these people exchanged the truth of God for earthbound idols of their own design. And the result of that exchange is verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they, notice verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They had the truth. It was right in front of them. It was in their conscience. It was all around them. And they looked at the truth and said, I don't want that. I'll take this. And the consequence of that is verse 26. For this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions. And then verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. I think you get the point. As they rebelled against the revelation they had, what they knew to be true in their hearts, as they rebelled against that, they were hardened And eventually, God turned them over to their own sinful desires. Now, that is a theological axiom. It's a reality. This is the way the God of creation works. At some point, the truth is played so loud over and over and over again. At some point... God says He withdraws His grace and He lets the sinner harden. Sometimes this is communicated in Scripture in active terms, like with Pharaoh, where God hardens them, but sometimes it's communicated passively. Romans 1, God turns them over. Either way, the consequence, the result of God's withdrawing of His grace is always the same. When God removes His grace, the human heart hardens. Without grace, the human heart calcifies. That's reality. That's a theological axiom. This is true all the time. This is the way that God works. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 4.12. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus operates in a consistent way with the Old Testament revelation. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the author of all truth, and He is very God of very God. And the unexplained parables that Jesus gave to the crowds were an act of divine judgment, specifically on the hard-hearted unbelief of those who had already rejected Him. And to make that crystal clear, 
he quotes, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. So why don't you turn there with me, um, and I, hopefully that will make all of this very clear. Verse 12 is a direct quote from Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. As you turn there, you'll remember that the first half of the book of Isaiah is not that glorious. Right? It's 35 chapters of judgment. Judgment, judgment, judgment. This is why you probably don't hear many people preach through the book of Isaiah. At 35 chapters of basically judgment, that would be many years of gloom. And actually, the book of Isaiah opens with a scathing indictment on the people of Judah. The Lord says that they had turned away from Him, and as a consequence of their rebellion against their God, they would experience the full consequence of judgment. And in the context of prophetic judgment, that judgment is coming, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord God calls and commissions the prophet Isaiah, to go and to preach to these hard-hearted rebels that are calling themselves the people of God. We'll pick it up in Isaiah 6. You can flip there. And we'll start in verse 8. This is after the well-known section there where Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And and then in verse 8, Isaiah, after he's been humbled, he's repented, he's atoned for, verse 8, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah is sufficiently humbled, and when you're sufficiently humbled, that's your response to God. I'm ready. (laughs) Send me wherever you want to go. You're God, you're Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. And now the Lord gives him his assignment. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening. But do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I'm talking about a difficult message to take to your people. How long am I to preach this message? Until judgment finally comes. In other words, Isaiah was commissioned to keep proclaiming the truth to these people and calling them to repent, even though they weren't going to listen. And they weren't going to listen to Isaiah because they hadn't listened to God for decades. They had heard the word of God over and over again, but they had hardened their hearts to the message. And so... Isaiah's proclamation to them would be essentially a divine judgment on them for their rebellion. So verse 10, Isaiah's preaching would serve, it says, 
to render the hearts, their hearts as insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes blind. It sounds like Isaiah's preaching is actually doing that to them. And it sounds like that because that's what's happening. But you have to remember that these people had already hardened their hearts against the Lord. So much so that Isaiah 1 verse 4 says this, that they had already abandoned the Lord and that they had despised the Holy One of Israel. And then in chapter 5 in verse 4, God says effectively that there was nothing more that He could do for these people. Right? You, you write the thing out that needed to happen for them to repent. Oh, I've already done that. Oh, I've already done that. I've already done that. From a human perspective, they have the blessing. They have it all. They've been given everything they need, but they refuse to bow to me and obey my word. They were a hard-hearted people. And so what's happening here is Isaiah is going to preach, and his preaching would only render their hearts even harder, and their eyes blinder, and their ears deafer. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Mark 4. They've been given all the privilege, they have it all, but they're doing just like their fathers. They're stiffening their neck against the Lord, and they're not listening to the message of God. And because they have hardened their hearts, their judgment is now sealed. According to Mark 3, verses 28 to 29, these men, the religious leaders and those who were following behind them, they had committed the unpardonable sin, you remember, by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They had cut themselves off from hope and God now was only further hardening their hearts as an act of divine judgment. So Jesus was going to continue to preach. And they would see Him because they were there to undermine Him. They were going to be there and they would hear and see Him. But while seeing, they would see and not perceive. And while hearing, they would hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So by their disobedience to God, their hard-heartedness, they had actually missed their shot to return to God and be forgiven. Tragedy. They had missed their chance. They had hardened themselves so much that there was nothing left for them to do but to sit and be further calcified in their rebellion. And friends, that is a very shocking and sobering message. Very sobering. And it, it has a particular point to those who are so privileged, who hear the Word of God week in, week out, have been given revelation, have been given all these avenues to hear the truth. And what we see is that there is a way that you can so harden yourself to the Word of God by outright disobedience, where you hear the Word of God over and over, and yet you don't respond to it with faith and repentance. And you don't realize that what's actually happening is your heart is hardening to the message of God. And you are growing calloused 
to the truth. And there comes a point from a human perspective, from man's perspective, where God says, okay, this person has hardened their heart long enough and the day of salvation has passed and now it's time to turn them over to divine judgment. That's Isaiah 6, 8-12. And I think that's the message of Mark 4 and verse 12. Now understand that is very uncomfortable. And I want to make a couple of, not caveats, but nuances to what, all that I just said. So number one, I understand there are people who think they are in this spot. They hear me say that. They hear Jesus say there is a time when the Lord passes on and he leaves one in hard-hearted rebellion. And they think, that's what's happened to me. I'm here this morning and I have lived a rebellious life. And if anyone has a hard-hearted heart against the Lord, it's me And the reason my life is such a mess and the reason I can't really believe the Lord is because I am hardened and the Lord has abandoned me. And He's left me here as an act of divine judgment. And I would just say, take your Bible, if you have a Bible, and turn to Mark 4, and let's look at verse 12 just really quickly. There are two points that I can make that show you that if you are thinking that way, you are not this hard-hearted person. Look, verse 12. So that while seeing they may see and not perceive. If you tell me that that's where you are, what you're telling me is that you are perceiving something. You are perceiving that you have rejected the message of God over and over again, and you're nervous and worried about it. And I'm I'm here to say you should be. You should be nervous and worried because the time comes where God says, I'm done. But today, if you perceive you ought to respond. That's the point. And then the next phrase, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. If you tell me that, you're here and you're listening to the message and you're afraid that maybe you've committed this sort of sin and that you're in this trouble, I would say you understand your situation. And the person in this spot does not understand their situation. If you understand the plight, the situation that you are in, and the danger that you have been immensely privileged to hear the Word of God and have a mom and dad who have taught you the Word of God week in, week out, if you understand that you have received such a privilege, then friends, you are not hardened in unbelief. You are ripe for harvest, right? You are right at the point where the Lord would have you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and trust Him and bow the knee to our Lord. So that's the first sort of nuance I would make. The second nuance I would make is this. This should feel hard for us and should be a a goad and a poke to us in our comfort because the Lord would have us be aware That every time we hear the message of God, there is obligation on us to respond. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I want you to read this with me. Hebrews chapter 3. 3 and verse 12. Take care. Who? Are you a brother? This is you. Take care. That means be on alert. Be aware. Be watchful. Be careful. Have your guard up. 
Be alert. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, I am a Calvinist. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that if God calls and elects and saves an individual, He will keep them to the end. Utterly true. But I also believe that God uses means to persevere His saints until the end. And one of those means are the warnings of Scripture. And this is a warning for God's people to be on alert and to just be watchful and careful. And so He says, Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. This is an active turn, not that you trip and you accidentally reject the Lord. That's not what this, is. this is not what it means to fall away. To fall away is that you look at the truth and you say, I don't want it, I'm going back to this. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, be careful. All of you be careful. Christians. And then verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long it is still as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be what? hardened hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what sin's deceitfulness is? One aspect of it is that sin will deceive you into thinking that all God wants from you is to come and hear a message on Sunday and to just sort of let it go in this one ear and then go out this ear and then you just remain unchanged. That's deceitfulness. That's what James talks about. You don't want to be a deceived hearer where you just hear the word over and over and the deceitfulness of it is that it, it just remains abstract to you. It has no power to change you. You just hear the word over and over. You know theology. You know the right truths. But it has zero effect in your life. We know Matthew 7. Jesus said there are two types of houses you can build. Both of the houses look exactly alike. But they have different foundations. And the foundation is the element you can't see. That's the heart. Jesus says the wise hearer is the one who hears the word of God and acts upon it. So the deceitfulness of sin, at least in some respect, is that you can be deceived into thinking that all God wants from you is to hear sermons all the time, to read the Bible all the time, and remain unchanged, not to respond in obedience. And friends, that is the pathway to hard-hearted rebellion. Okay? Verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, verse 15, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked Him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, talk about privilege? These were privileged people. And they saw all the glory and all the wonder. Yet, somehow they hardened their hearts and rejected all that they had been told. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And then verse 19, here's the key. 
So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And that's the issue. It's long-term unbelief in the face of revelation. That's the issue. Long-term unbelief in the face of constant exposure to the truth. You, you essentially get inoculated to it. And your heart is hardened to it, and you reject it. And so, friends, I, I just want to bring this before you, not to scare you out of your salvation. That's not my aim. I, I just want to honestly do justice to Mark 4.12, uh, but I also want to do justice to all of Scripture. And all of Scripture comes to us as Christians and says, vertically, we are in Christ and all is well. And let's sing about it and rejoice and not fear. But horizontally, we have to continually press on and keep a close watch on our hearts, lest there be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that causes us to fall away. So we have to maintain both of those realities. And let me just give you one more nuance here of application to this passage. I've told you, I think that the parable of the sower is really a vindication of the sower. I think that's really what's happening in this passage. And I think this verse crystallizes that for me in my interpretation. The sower has to sow his seed which is the message of the gospel, in a world where he does not know the hearts of men. And there is a way in which sometimes the proclamation of the gospel, done utterly faithful, functions only as a judgment upon those who have already rejected the word of God. So this was the prophetic ministry, right? It's sobering. It's not something we're, we rejoice about. Because we understand that were it not for the grace of God, there go I. Right? We understand that. So we don't, we don't boast in this. But we do understand that we've been given divine insight into how the kingdom of God works. And other people don't have it. And sometimes we preach the gospel and it falls on rock-hard soil, and the people don't respond. And we do it again and again, again, and they don't respond. Well, this passage teaches us that sometimes the sower is called to sow the seed faithfully, and sometimes the lack of reception of that seed is an act of divine judgment. Ezekiel was called to this. Remember, I read, we read from his commissioning at the beginning of the service. Ezekiel was called to sow the seed of the word in Ezekiel 2 and 3, and God spoke to him in this way. He said in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 3, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this day. Personal responsibility. I am sending you to them, who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, 
Though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. Who cares what they think about you? (laughs) Who cares? They are a rebellious house. Don't give any heed to their evaluation of you, Ezekiel. You are to say, verse 7, You shall speak my words to them, whether they listen to you or not. For they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Then chapter 3, verse 4. Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. In other words, I'm not sending you to a foreign nation. That would be really, you know, you'd think that would be really hard. But actually your assignment is even more difficult because you're going to go to a people who know your language. They understand you. They have the same background and culture and history. But they will not listen to you. He says, I'm not sending you to many peoples of unintelligible, unintelligible speech or difficult language, those words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. They should listen to you. Yet, verse 7, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. That's the issue. That's the issue. The issue is that they have a hard heart, Ezekiel. Now, I'm sending you to go preach to them, but they're not going to listen to you. They might, they might not from a human perspective. God knows whether they will or not. But from a human perspective, they may or they may not. But Ezekiel, your assignment is the same. And it's laid out again in verse 11. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says says the Lord God, whether they listen or not. That's your assignment, Ezekiel. So my question is, how would God measure Ezekiel's faithfulness? How is God going to measure Ezekiel's faithfulness? It's not by results. Whether they listen or not, you go to them and say, thus says the Lord God. What's the measurement? The metric for faithfulness is that at the end of your proclamation, Ezekiel, you should be able to say, thus says the Lord. If you've done that, then you have been faithful. And friends, I will say, we live in an age that is not favorable to sowers. We sow the word in a world that constantly rejects the message of God. We have good news for sinners And we are laughed at and scorned for it. And increasingly so. The world rejects the word of God. It's not palatable to them because they don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. And what has happened is the the world and the church sort of has bought into this, has said, okay, the issue, the reason the world is not listening to what you guys have to say is because your style is wrong. Uh, the reason they're not listening to what you have to say is because maybe you just need to lighten it up a bit. 
Right? Maybe just tone it down a little bit. Give them something funny. Give them something encouraging. Give them something to motivate them a little bit. Help them to feel better. They've had a big week, and now you're giving them a 59-minute sermon. Give them a break. Imagine going to Ezekiel or Isaiah and saying, all right, I know you've been preaching for you know, a couple weeks now, and I see the results you have. You know, they're throwing things at you. It's not going well. Here's what I think you need to do. Just lighten it up, Isaiah. Less judgment, more comfort, peace, peace. Say peace, peace. Can you say peace? All right, say peace. (laughs) And the false prophets, they were saying peace, peace, when what? There was no peace. The tragedy of our age is that so many have bought into that lie that the problem is a problem of the sower. And so we need to modify the sower seed or the way the sower dresses or you know, smoke, mirrors, lights, whatever, so that the message of the, the seed falls on better soil. And what happens is, in an effort to reach the world, the gospel message is compromised and the prophetic note is lost. They're no longer prophetic because they are no longer the voice of God in the world. That's, that's the issue. They become just another motivational speaker in a world fixated on itself. When the reality is that God has called us, His people, to stand up and to stand out in a world that is hostile against God. Read Psalm 2. We are ambassadors for a king that the world hates. But we are called to take His message so the word of His gospel throughout the world, even if they Reject it. And we understand that even when the word of God is rejected, when our evangelistic efforts fail, that God is still carrying out His purpose. Mark 4 verse 12 tells us that. That there are purposes in the mind of God that are beyond us. We don't know when the message that we proclaim turns into judgment on the person hearing. We don't know that. We're not tasked. We're not called to know that. But what we are called to do is to do what Ezekiel was called to do. We are called to say, thus says the Lord, whether they listen or not. That's our responsibility. And friends, once you do that, and once you believe that, all the weight of responsibility and evangelism and discipling your children, all of that, man, it just gets light all of a sudden. Because you realize that it's really not about you. It's about you faithfully proclaiming the message and then letting the Lord God do all the work. And that's a wonderful occupation to be in, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you that the gospel message shines so brightly against the backdrop of such dark and difficult truth for us to swallow. And Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us blind uh, or on the pathway of chasing our sin, but you came to us when we had rejected the word again and again. Lord, you came to us still in grace and mercy, and you caused us to be born again to a living hope. And Father, we thank you that the gospel message um, is true and that it's salvific and that your spirit works through it to bring life when that is your divine purpose. And so, Father, we praise you for that and we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have not given us and returned to us what our sin deserves, 
but that you have dealt with us so graciously in Christ. And we love you, Lord. Amen.